Well, good morning, church. Merry Christmas. It is good to be with you this morning, and I hope that your Christmas was a good time. I, 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 uh, whether it was very busy and full of lots of activity, or whether it was rather low-key, um, I, I really hope that it was a meaningful time for you, uh, and a meaningful time for your family. And I hope it was a time where you got a chance to reflect on, um, just on the year, and also reflect on on this leading up time and reflect on what God has been doing and what God is doing and what God continues to do. Um, so a week ago Friday, uh, we had our staff Christmas party, which was an excellent time. Um, and, and Daniel and Monique and Angela and I got together and um, had a meal together and just shared some time together. Uh, and, and in it, we were talking about our we were talking about Christmas traditions that we grew up with, and you know, kind of sharing things you know that are that are meaningful. And and one that uh, one that Daniel uh, spoke of that I just thought was hilariously funny, but very apropos, was that so they have this nativity scene that um, that that was that their parent that his parents had in the house and everything, and so they'd set everything up, and then um, you know Jesus would come at the appropriate time, but the wise men. We're not there, you know, and, and, and they'd be like, where are the wise men down? And like, they're not there yet, you know, and then they'd start showing up around parts of the house, you know, I mean, maybe kind of like Elf on the Shelf, you know, like all of a sudden, you know, here, he's over here and, you know, and then the next day is over there and the next day is over there and slowly but surely making their way in to the, uh, making their way into the, to the manger scene. Um, and, and. I, I thought that that was a great example of, of just this idea of of continuing, not not just the idea that, that Christmas is not a day, it is a season, and that Christmas is not an event, it is a mindset, but, but also just remembering, if you remember what we talked about last Sunday, this idea of not rushing the narrative, Luke made a really big point in his gospel to spend a lot of time stretching out the narrative of Advent, the narrative of that anticipation of Christ's coming so that we would savor it and not just rush through it. But at the same time, there is, there is, a, there is a slowing down that happens after that too. And I think that that's on purpose as well. And one of the things that I think is interesting about the traveling wise men is, and, and this is not a knock on any, I, I just, I'm remembering, you know, I'm just remembering Monique saying how it's just, you know, it just brings despair to the depths of her soul when she sees people pulling down their Christmas lights on the 27th or whatever, right? Um, but, so, this is not a condemnation of you if you were that person, okay? I'm just, just saying that. I'm just going to start with that right there, okay? But, at the same time, it reveals a very interesting phenomena to me that there's all this buildup. I actually got really bummed, you know, because I've been listening to, uh, I've been listening to, to, um, Praise 106.5 and stuff like that when I'm in the van with the kids and they're doing all the Christmas music and everything, right? And, 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 and admittedly, I'm kind of a humbug on that. It takes me a little while to get used to it. So when I hear stores like doing it in like mid-November, I'm like, what is wrong with you? You know, and, and then about the beginning of December, I'm kind of like, okay, yes, yeah, about time. And then like maybe like a couple weeks before, I'm finally like, yes, Christmas music. It makes sense now. And just about the time that I'm getting used to it, it's gone. And yesterday, you know, and, and yesterday I turned on the radio and it's like, oh, we're just, we're just back to the regular stuff. Great. And it just, I, it seems so interesting to me 
about our response to Christmas. Are we more in are we more in tune with the anticipation of Christmas than the revelation of Christmas? We have so much build up. We have so much time that we get ready and that we, you know, and, and, and I realize that some of that is probably advertising, right? We're trying to get you to buy stuff for Christmas and we're trying to get you to buy stuff for Christmas and, and oh, now Christmas is over. Okay, right on to the next thing. Okay, I understand that culturally we want to get past it and get to the next thing, but I wonder, I wonder what it is that makes us want to spend so much time anticipating Christmas and not as much time living in Christmas. Matthew also shows us a very unrushed narrative today. There's, there's a really important word right at the beginning of our passage this morning, and it was after Jesus was born. And I have no idea how much time passes in that after, but I know that there's some significant time there. And by the time, the, by the time these magi show up, it's probably, it's at least been months possibly even a year or more, okay? One of the things that we realize is that Joseph, Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus are no longer in a manger scene, and they're no longer at an inn. They're at a house now. That's an interesting thing. I wonder what they're doing in a house in Bethlehem. I wonder. I wonder if maybe it was one of those things like, I mean, if you think of practical, it's like, hey, you've just had a baby. We're not going to go travel back to Nazareth. Maybe even more practical, hey, you've just had a baby, and... Uh, People may be able to do the math. Maybe we should stay in Bethlehem for a little while where people don't really know us. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why they're still there, but they are still there. Have you ever wondered, though, because as soon as I started looking at this passage, I started thinking up all kinds of neat questions. And one of my big questions was, why a star? Why a star of all things? Why is that being used to communicate? I mean, I understand angelic chorus, talking to shepherds. I get that one. You know, I, I, understand, I understand prophets and, and words coming true and, and prophecy and things like that. Why a star? Why a star? And, and, and how did this even become a part of, of the Christmas story? And why did God decide to use this? Because this immediately brings something up to me. You know, these, these magi, they're astrologers, Okay. They, they, they study the heavens to determine meaning and purpose in creation. And in the ancient world, stars were considered divine, or at least they, they, had, they were either divine themselves or they were divinely influenced. And you look through the Old Testament, and God has regularly warned Israel not to fall into the temptation to look to the heavens for guidance. And, and not to entertain people that do. So why on earth would God now choose to use a star for us in, in this exalted position if it was an idolatrous thing? Why would he do that? And I think at least the answer starts for us in understanding the role of the heavenly bodies in Hebrew thought. If you look at if you look back in Isaiah in Isaiah forty five and Isaiah forty some of these prophecies that we now look at as, as being attached to um, attached to the coming of Messiah and, and and definitely attached to God's sovereignty when people are challenged by life um, you look and, and and God uses these ideas of the stars and the heavenly bodies 
that they're not divine themselves, but what they are is that they are heralds of the divine. They announce the divine nature of God. They are reminders of the divine. They're proof positive for God's unchallenged rule over creation. I don't know if you got a chance to go outside the last few nights around Christmas time, but the sky was uncommonly clear, wasn't it? Didn't have the usual clouds. And boy, I'll t- especially, especially last night, it was cold and it was clear and it was beautiful. And, and, and I went out to let the dog out, you know, as is our usual routine, kind of like last thing that we do with the night and everything. The next thing you know, like five minutes have gone by, you know, and the dog's like, so are we going inside yet? Or what are you, what are you doing? You know, because <laughs> I let the dog out to do her business. And the next thing I know, I'm standing there going, you know, just kind of gaping at the sky because it's amazing. And, and any time you just stop and, and gaze at the stars. There is something that happens to us on a very, very primal level, I think. We, I mean, one, we realize just how very, very little we are, okay? Um, and, I, and I believe that God designed that to happen. But I also think that it, that it sends a message on a very, very deep and a very universal level to us that was designed by God and designed into his creation, is that any time we start to feel like we are the captains of our destiny— God says all you really need to do is just kind of raise your eyes a little bit to the heavens and remember, on the one hand, how, how exalted God has made you, and yet how small you are. And, and, and that is communicated so well in the Psalms as well, right? Um, you know, when I, when, I, when I cast my eyes to the heavens, when I look on the work of your hands, what is man, what is mankind, what are humans that you are mindful of us? You know, we are nothing, and yet you have made us just a little lower than the angels and crowned us with glory and honor. And, and any time we start to get a little bit ahead of ourselves, that's what God calls us to do. He says, take a look, raise your eyes a little bit. Get up out of where you are and just take a look at the heavens for a second and remember how small yet how significant I have made you. But the stars do more than that. When we look in Psalm 19 and when we look in, in, in Psalm 138, they're, they are also communicators of the divine. They're not just, they, they aren't just a reminder of how small we are. They are actually designed to communicate things to humankind. If you look in Psalm 19, they deliver the declaration of the sovereignty of God. The heavens declare the sovereignty of the Lord. The Psalm starts out. Right? And then you look in 138 and it says that the, that the stars are agents of praise. That they actually are like song leaders. They lead us in the rest of creation to praise and rejoice with God. And when it says, you know, re- you know, praise the Lord, all you heavens, praise the Lord, all you starry host. And then it just kind of goes down the list. You know, all of creation begins to praise. And then finally it says, all you mankind, young, old, or otherwise, praise the Lord. And so there's this idea that, that not, only, not, only, not only do the heavens declare the majesty of God, the heavens invite us to praise along with God. 
And those are, those are really, really deep-rooted ideas about the heavens in Hebrew thought. And so what is this star? We don't know. We have no idea. Is it a regular star that, that God, you know, enhances? Is it a specific phenomena with an actual star? We don't know. It could even have been a comet. Halley's Comet was recorded right around the... There was a time that Halley's Comet came through the system right around the time of Jesus' birth. It might have been that. We don't know. Or it could even be some other body that would have had a greater range of motion. A lot of scholars try to say that, that this might actually have been something kind of like the pillar of fire. You know, a, a manifest presence of God guiding, moving, and then being stationary. We don't know. I don't know that it's important. I don't think it's as important that we know what it is as we understand what it's doing. Because Matthew's not going after a natural explanation. That's not really his concern. It's the supernatural significance of what the star is designed to do. The supernatural significance is that it is both a herald of God's manifest presence and it is an invitation for creation to join in to that praise on a very real level that's connected with the birth of Jesus. Now, here's the thing. That spiritual significance provokes a large amount of tension in this passage. A large amount. This is actually a, this is actually a problem passage. We kind of read this and we're like, oh yes, you know, it's a story of... But do we realize how much tension is in this passage. It's commu- it's, it's, there's a specific message that Matthew wants to get across here. And it's communicated in the reactions to the star of the Messiah. We get two reactions. The first is this. We find out that Herod, who is the appointed leader of, Jude, of Judea by Rome, he is greatly disturbed. And that makes sense, okay? That makes sense. Because one... Herod's not even a Jew. He's an Edomite. Okay? He has been he is able to act Jewish enough. He is able to act the part enough for Rome to be convinced enough that he can be a man in power. And so they appoint him as a puppet ruler over Judea, okay? It's a very tenuous political situation. And so if you're not even one if you're not even one of the people that you're ruling, but you're ruling over them saying that you're one of the people, but everybody knows that you're not. And now all of a sudden you get word that somebody else has been born from those people that is a rightful ruler, and you know your religious history, and you know what's going on. You can understand that he's going to be greatly disturbed. Greatly disturbed probably doesn't even really cover it, okay? Probably tearing out his hair, okay? He's greatly disturbed. But the thing that I think is even more surprising, and all Jerusalem was disturbed with him. Why? Why? You're an oppressed people. You have a puppet ruler of Rome ruling over you. You've been waiting for this for centuries. Why are you disturbed? Why is your reaction to be fearful? Why is your reaction to be suspicious, O people of Jerusalem? I don't get that. I don't understand that. There's that reaction on the one hand, and then you you pair that up against these guys coming in from the outside, these magi. They have no stake in any of this. They're from another country. They're from another place. They're from a completely different system of belief. And they're coming in from the outside, 
And their response is not to be apathetic. Eh? Their response is not to be suspicious. Their response is not to be disturbed. What on earth is going on in the heavens? Their response is what? They're overjoyed. Like, I mean, the, the language there is, the language there literally is, they rejoiced with great rejoicing. There's a lot of redundancy rejoicing going on in their lives right there. Why is Israel so disturbed? And these people coming from the outsiders, why are they rejoicing? That doesn't make sense. And we've got to resolve that for this to make any sense to us. And we also have to resolve what it means for us as people who also are having to deal with this time where, where the anticipation is over and now Jesus is with us. So what are we going to do with that? Here's what I hope we'll do with that, okay? First, we need to go back and we need to understand that, that this idea of a star being connected to the Messiah is actually really, really far back. You go all the way back to Numbers chapter 24, Okay. Go all the way back to the time when Israel is coming out of the out of the wilderness and into the promised land and they run into these guys they, they, they run into these these guys the Malachites and there's a there's a king named Balak and he really really wants to keep uh, Israel from and, and Israel's just been conquering every, they, nobody can touch Israel on their way into the promised land right because God is with them. And Balak says, okay, I get this whole thing. They've obviously got a divine power with them. I don't necessarily know who that divine power is, but I'm going to bring in my own divine power to help me out. So he brings in a prophet guy who's really good at the whole blessing and curses thing and says, I basically want you to stand on a mountain and I want you to curse these people, okay? And the, prophet, and the prophet's name is Balaam. And we basically know him because his donkey is smarter than he is, okay? That's how we know who Balaam is, Right? We know that story of the talking donkey and, and all that stuff, okay? But but the rest of this the rest of the story is is the king giving Balaam all this money to curse Israel and he can't do it. He can't do it. One because you know, one because he almost lost his life on the way there, and only by the mercy of God is he spared, but also because as he is opening himself up. There is no curse. There is a blessing. And so he says, I can, only, I can only do what God's telling me to do, and God's telling me to bless. And the, guy, and the king keeps heaping more money, and he just keeps blessing. And he's like, why aren't you doing this? Am I not paying you enough? And he's like, no, you don't understand. That's not really what this is about. And you finally get to the end of this series, of this narrative between the king and the prophet, and there's this last little bit. And in, and in, and in this oracle of Balaam, this last blessing, God lets him look like way out in the future. And he says, I see it from afar, but it's not here yet. I see him coming, but he's not here yet. And it says, a star will rise out from Judah. Will rise and will establish himself among the nations. And so... There is this thing, and it gets realized all the way through the Old Testament during the exile, pointing to that there is going to be this greater Messiah that's coming with an unconquerable kingdom, this, this star that comes out of Judah. And the idea of the star is that it is a herald of that kingdom. 
and Israel is to be its representatives. I think one of the things we always we always miss when when we look at this idea of of, of the promise that a, that a, that God makes to Abraham, and He says, "I'm going to make you like the stars." It's not just as many as the stars. It's not just as numerous as the stars. He says, "I'm going to make you like the stars," not just in your number, but in your function. Israel is supposed to be the divine herald of God. They're they're the ones that are supposed to proclaim the glory of the Lord, right? That's the whole reason for their existence. Is to say, we are the people of God. We're going to show you who he is. And we're going to show you what life with him is like. They're not just supposed to be as many as the stars. They're supposed to be like the stars. And that idea is being developed all the way through the Old Testament. Okay? This should be great news for the Jews. And this should be bad news for the Magi, but we find the roles are reversed. Instead, the Magi rejoice. Why is that? Because of the language of the heavens. Remember, the stars, even in Hebrew understanding, are higher authority than earthly authority. And whenever earthly authority sets itself up, the heavenly authority wins. And for the Magi, God is communicating in the higher language of the heavens that trumps the earthly kingdoms. This word Magi has its roots in Chaldea, in in the land of the Babylonians and the Persians, where, where Israel was in exile. And you go, like, how did these guys even know about the star and these prophecies about the Messiah and everything? Who was one of the greatest Magi of Babylon and Persia. Magi really means being a cross between an advisor and a scientist and a prophet, kind of all those things together. Who was one of the greatest ones? A Hebrew named Daniel. And so all of his prophecies from the book of Daniel about about the, the times and places of the Messiah coming, as well as the references to the numbers passages and all of these things, they've got these guys looking looking to the heavens, looking to the heavens and being aware of what's going on. And it's, and it's so amazing that while Jerusalem's not looking for their Savior, people outside Jerusalem are. And they're ready. And as Jesus said, those who seek, find. And so they see the star and they notice it for what it is and they follow it. I think Matthew is trying to communicate a specific message all the way through his gospel, and that's simply this. The kingdom of heaven is different than any kingdom ever conceived of. And he repeatedly uses examples of people who should be able to embrace Jesus, either being completely ignorant of him or being antagonistic to his rule as king. And he sets that up against those who seemingly have no business being a part of the kingdom. They embrace Messiah and they're welcomed in. The people who should have part decide not to have part. And the people who shouldn't have any business coming into the kingdom, they're the ones that get welcomed in. And it runs all the way through Matthew's gospel. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is different. You don't get in by having the right birthright or by having enough money, or by having the right credentials. You don't get into the kingdom that way. You don't get your citizenship in the kingdom of heaven by looking right, or acting right, or whatever. You get your citizenship in the kingdom by submitting yourself to the king. And when you do that, he welcomes you in. And if you're not willing to do that, 
then you're not a part of the kingdom. Matthew says. There's, there's no other claim you can make. You've got to know the king. And so it sets up this tension between the reactions of Herod and the people of Jerusalem and the Magi that bear witness to this event. What's God going to do? And what does it mean for you and I? Here, here is the insight that I think that we can find here. Okay? Realize this. Herod is resistant because he has carved out this nice little kingdom for himself. Okay? He's, he, you know, it, he's got his niche, he's got the power, and he's doing everything he can to hold on to it. And the advent of Messiah, the idea of Christ being made manifest in the world, threatens everything in that little kingdom that he's constructed, right? And the narrative that follows this, the, 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 the story that follows is grisly, and it is horrific, and it shows just how far Herod is willing to go, even infanticide, even, even, even the killing of an entire generation of baby boys. He's willing to basically go be like Pharaoh in Egypt, okay, if you, if you realize that. He's willing to go that far to try and hold on to his kingdom rather than accept the king that is coming. To try and keep himself safe from what he perceives as a threat of the rule of Messiah. Okay? I think we can get that one. But I think the people of Jerusalem are even more interesting. Because they don't like Herod, and they don't like Rome. But here's the thing. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, it may not be good, but at least it's consistent. And they've already had their share of messiahs rising up, saying, you know, follow me, I'm going to challenge the status quo. And so far, the only thing that that's meant for them is more military, more strife, more crucifixions, more taxes, more pain in the neck until things settle down and get back to the norm again. And so for them, they also have carved out their little kingdoms. Their little kingdoms of life as usual. And Messiah is fine as long as he's at a distance. As long as he's the hope that's coming, that's okay. Because we can go with a little bit of hope. A little bit of hope will keep us going while things basically stay the same. But you don't want Messiah to come near. You don't want Messiah to get too close. You don't want Messiah to move from being the hope that is coming to the hope that is here because then he upsets the status quo. And upsetting the status quo is messy. And upsetting the status quo is fearful. Even if the status quo stinks. And, and, and the thing that Matthew is putting his finger on in the Jewish understanding and say, hey, that's wrong. Is that they missed and they resisted and later they would even kill their Messiah because... 
they were more content living in a world where Messiah was perpetually on the way rather than a world where Messiah was come in flesh. Think about that. Think about that. On the other hand, then there are these other outsiders. There are these magi. And they are more than willing to let Jesus upend their normal lives. And you think about what they have to do. They leave their homes. They travel for a long time. You know, they're in danger. They are alone. They, 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 they come into a political mess and there's all this cloak and dagger, skullduggery, hardship stuff. And yet, they respond with joy. Why is that? I believe it's because, in spite of all that, they're convinced that they've been invited to witness something that's life-changing. And they actually want that. Because they believe that what the heavens declare is greater than what the little kingdoms going on down on the earth are worth. And I think that's really what the Gospel of Matthew wants to challenge us with. I think that's what this passage is designed to be. It's designed to be an encouragement to say rejoice, but it's also designed to be a challenge to say, who are you in this passage? Who are we in this passage? Who are we going to identify more with in this word that manifests Jesus in this celebration of Christmas? The time of Advent's over. The time of anticipation is over. He's not coming. He's here. And who are we in this story? Do we find ourselves to be more like Herod? Resisting this Jesus whose coming means the demise of the little kingdoms that we've built up in our lives? Are we more like the people of Jerusalem? We're content to, we love the anticipation. We love the build-up, man. But we want to keep him comfortably distant, and we get really, really disturbed when he gets into our lives and starts messing up the status quo, when he actually, comes what, when he actually does what he came to do, which is to come in and transform our lives. Do we want to keep him distant rather than bringing him close? Or, or will we be like these outsiders? These people that realize that they, they, they got invited into something that they were not originally a part of at all. And yet God specifically invites them in in a way that they can get a hold of. And they let a higher authority direct their steps and they let it upend their lives and their preoccupations and their convictions, all of those things, and gather around this tiny, seemingly insignificant baby boy. The word says they opened up their treasures. That it was nothing for them to take everything that was precious and open it up and just turn it out at his feet. 
when I think of the word of rejoicing, when I think of the idea of joy. That's what I always want to connect it with. That for me, to be able to encounter Jesus in my life, that it is nothing now for me to take everything that is precious and turn it over and dump it out at his feet and say, here it is. And I am so glad that I get to do that. Why? Because you are not distant to me. You're here. You're not just a far off hope. You're a hope that's in me now. Who will we be? Will we be people that are constantly infatuated with Jesus coming or will we be overjoyed with the fact that Jesus is here among us by his spirit living in us, transforming us? Will we be disturbed by that or will we rejoice with that? We're getting ready to we're getting ready to sing another song that is one of my favorite Christmas carols. And we sing it so often as a declaration of joy, as it should be. But I want you to consider the words of the verse that we are about to sing. Because not only is it a declaration of joy, it is also a challenge to humanity. The same as Matthew challenges humanity and says, who are you going to be like? Are you going to be like the people who should know better but are disturbed and want to keep the Messiah at a distance? Or are you going to let your heart prepare him room? Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let Every heart make room for him as heaven and nature sing. Let's stand and let us worship.